Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Jonathan Duma. He is an organizational psychologist and leadership and career coach. He has consulted with various organizations on creating sustainable and thriving cultures that encourage diversity, equity, and inclusivity. So he's got a lot of great things going on for himself, and I'm super excited to have him share some wisdom today. So Jonathan, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Awesome. Yes. Well, first, thank you so much for having me and inviting me on to your show. I always love to um, be on other people's podcasts. It's just, um, this is my favorite medium of communication. So it's always fun. Um, So yeah, like you said, my name is Jonathan Dumas. Um, I am an organizational psychologist, um, leadership and career coach, um, speaker, um, hopefully one day author. But um, yeah, I love I, I'm really passionate about work and seeing people thrive um, and loving what they do. And if they're not loving what they do, at least what they do helps them get to do what they love, you know? Um, and then, you know, I'm just like an everyday person. Um, I love sports. Uh, Boston Celtics are my favorite basketball team. Love to stay active, go on hikes, travel with my partner. Um, I've been to like 38 states. I'm trying to get to all 50 one day. Um, love to read. I uh, read like 30 books last year um, because obviously we were all in pandemic, so there was nothing really else for me to do. Um, but yeah, I just started my own business earlier this year, actually, um, after working for other people for um, a while. I decided to just, you know, take the leap and, and do my own thing because I, I, I bounced around a good amount in my um, working life. Uh, simply looking for something that honestly wasn't there and available for me because like I needed to create it myself. And so um, I started uh, Common Culture Coaching and Consulting um, back in May, I believe. Um, And actually launch day was on December 6th. So that's officially like my, you know, uh, hi, I'm here world uh, for Common Culture. Um, And I offer coaching services both individually and group, um, just helping people kind of understand you know, what they want out of their job, um, what they want out of work, what they want out of their careers, and then also helping people level up their leadership skills. And what I've found with helping individuals and groups is that um, work is really tied with what is going on in their lives. So sometimes we'll touch on, you know, how do you perceive like your work really impacting your life um, and vice versa, because I don't really believe that there ever was um, a difference between work and um work life and personal life. And so those kind of blend and um, it's trying to find harmony between those things. And then on the consulting side, I work with companies um, on organizational development things, um, particularly uh, through a diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice lens. So if you're doing an organizational restructure, for example, how is that impacting everybody on the team? Um, Are there power dynamics at play? And how can we, when we're doing this organizational restructure, Um, divest from power where it's like this solo person into more of a team-oriented, more of a collective kind of feel. So those are kind of like the dynamics that I work with there, very um, in a nutshell for the most part. Um, But that's a lot, but that is all um, that is encompassing of me that I can, that comes to mind. Yeah. So what is it that got you into 
for yourself, wanting to thrive at work, and then wanting to help others thrive at work? That's a great question. So um, it actually comes down to like why I became an organizational psychologist. First of all, um, if you don't know what organizational psychology is, basically you got to think about like psychology and business and like those two things um, coming together. And so it's looking at, you know, behaviors in the workplace, social behaviors in the workplace, um, communication, leadership, all those cool um, things that are like hip and trending now. Well, at least in my world, I don't know if everybody's keeping up with all that. Um, but I, um, it actually started my last year of college, second semester. And so all of my life, since like three or four, I was pretty certain that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, that's, I mean, I went to my undergrad, history, political science, just like so many people that go to their undergrad, they choose a major and then they don't do anything essentially with it afterwards. But I like had this like existential crisis second semester of, of my senior year of college and saying like, I don't want to go to law school. Like I really didn't. Um, uh, and I just like, didn't know what to do. So I got this like civil servant job working for the city um, and just worked at the city clerk's office, worked with documents all day. Um, and as a lawyer, majority of the time, you're actually working with documents. So I know for sure I did not want to be a lawyer after that. <laughs> um, and so I was doing that job and somebody like recommended me to go. Um, it was at my alma mater and um, I didn't have the greatest experience there, both working and as an undergrad. So I'm not going to really share their name. They don't get free publicity. But I went back to my alma mater and um, as an admissions counselor. And I really, really loved this job because at the time I really, really loved my school. And so I wanted everybody to have that same experience. But what I noticed pretty quickly is that there was a lot of people that joined that job and loved interacting with students, loved hearing their stories, helping them, you know, figure out what they want to do with their life. Right. Um, but the, what I saw in my group was that people. People loved it. And then within six months, they were ready to quit. People were, were ready to leave. And it was not because the, the job was hard. It was difficult. A lot of hours. Um, we were a little known school, so it was, a, it was a grind to admit students, but it was more so that the management was terrible. Like the management was absolutely horrendous, um, like to a point where people had to go to therapy after. I mean, me personally, I, um, I experienced like high levels of anxiety that I've never experienced before um, and depression in that role. And I was like, what is going on? Like I'm, I'm experiencing and feeling things that I've never felt before. Like, is there something wrong with me? Um, and the more I like dug into it and looked at it, um, I, I decided that I was ready to go back to grad school. And I've stumbled upon this thing called organizational psychology. And it was answering a lot of questions for me. And so I, I'm in this program and I'm like, wow, like this is, uh, <laughs> it's answering all of the questions because it's like, oh, it's actually nothing wrong with me. It's like really bad management, like not caring for people, not, not, um, you know, doing like the bare minimum of like, you know, um, not just like happy birthday, but it's just like, you know, um, you've been working really hard, like come in a little bit later uh, in this day, you know, you worked until 10, 11 o'clock at night, come in later the next day, it's totally fine, like treating people like people. And so um, that's kind of where I fell in love with organizational psychology and wanting to like learn about thriving workplaces and, and developing thriving workplaces. But more so I, um, I uh, kept trying to figure out uh, and land in a place that was that for me. And it just wasn't until I created, literally created my own, my own job and, and started my own company. And that's where I've, I felt and fit like 
I want to do this and support companies and support businesses and organizations do this even more full time. And so I did that a few months ago. Long answer, short question. Sorry about that. But yeah, all of that um, is kind of how I landed here today. No worries. So what is it like running your own business and being your own boss? <laughs> it is. Um, well, number one, there's always things to do. Always. Like I think I, I'm and sometimes I get in my head um, with like all the stuff I need to do. Um, but I think there is a level of autonomy that I didn't realize that I was lacking in any other position. Um, and and a desire not to succeed, but like it's it's more so of like hmm, how to explain this. Being my like being my own like supervisor, working for myself allows me to say yes to the things I want to say yes to and then no to the things I want to say no to. Um I I mean I can set my own rules, I can I can decide who I want to work with um and have conversations with and you know um really set the values and standards of what I want common culture to be. Um instead of trying to match and fit into a box that doesn't really exist for me because I'm the only one that of me that exists, right? And so instead of like trying to get to, you know, find this company that aligns perfectly with everything that I am, um, I decided to create it and uh, support companies to, to um, partner with their employees rather than just like kind of boss them and manage them around. Um, and that's really like life-giving to me. I didn't realize like I, I wanted that so much but there's a lot of other things that go with that like i'm learning that like the nine to five schedule does not work for me and so it's still kind of like learning how to or unlearning that and learning like my own work schedule and learning my own workflow um because sometimes i'll try and get up at seven but like or get up at 6 30 and then go to and start working at like eight but actually my brain functions the best like if i get up in the morning i go to the gym I make breakfast, I stretch, I go for a walk, I make, I'll make my partner something to eat. Um, I'll watch like a show. And then like by like nine or 10, that's when my brain is working. And then I'll work for like two, three hours. And then I need to go do something else, run some errands, come back and work for a few hours. So it's like learning my own workflows too. So it's, but it's really hard. I feel like people, there's this over, um, what is it? This infatuation with like hustle culture and having like a ton of side hustles and it's not all it's cracked up to be um i feel like people are trying to create some safety net for themselves or have money in the bank and stuff like that with the, the extra side hustles or just survive but um and i used to be that way like and still am to to a certain degree like i'm still looking at like oh if i get one job and i can just like you know put all that money in savings or put it towards student loans but i feel like you know, this hustle and grind and like working 10 hours and 13 hours or whatever, it's just like, it, you don't need to do that. And, and and for some people that's like life giving to them. For me, I know for a fact that that's not. And so I'm trying to also learn or unlearn like the busyness culture that exists within America and um, replace that with like stillness, mindfulness, slowness, not um, rushing to get things done. Um, but I know that that also, there's a level of privilege with that because I have a partner that works full time. Um, we used to be a dual income household. We don't have any kids. Um, the only bills that we have at this point is like student loans. We have two cars that are paid off and all that stuff. So I know there's a level of privilege that comes with that. 
Um, and so I'm trying to find ways to navigate that well. But um, yeah, that's kind of what it is to be my own boss. I really do, or my own supervisor, work for myself. I really do love it and enjoy it, but there are some ups and downs with it. Working alone is not fun. <laughs> and so it's just trying to find community and stuff like that is really important to me. That's why sometimes I'll work in a coffee shop for a couple hours just to get people um, in the hustle bustle around me um, so I can be more effective. So, yeah. All right, of course. Now, what would your perfect culture be like at a job? Like, what do you think companies should be doing? Mm. So it's it's hard. To, so it's hard to say like one uh, a one fits all approach, and and I don't actually do a one fits all approach. Like when I work at the company, my first thing is is like I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. Um, I'm going to figure out what exists here. What what is it? Why why am I even here? Um, to try and figure out how how can we work together? Because I don't I don't want to tell people what to do. Like that's not necessarily what how I go about consulting. I'm a thought partner um, and work with my clients pretty closely to figure out a solution that works best for them. So, but what I do know um, within cultures is that like there is like things that are absolutely wrong that should not exist, right? Um, there shouldn't be, um, within a culture, there, uh, people should be treated like people. Um, I believe that like unlimited PTO is the way to go. I believe that people should be able to have a living wage to survive instead of like not having to work, you know, moonlight jobs or um, have a situation that comes up in, in a family where, you know, $500. Um, I think I heard a stat the other day. I don't know if it's the same, but it's just like, you know, a $500 situation. It doesn't matter if it's a car, um, you know, medical bills or whatever. That could be like, that could really set up families are, are a person back, you know, and I, I grew up in a situation where um, it wasn't $500. It was like $50, an extra $50 would, would be um, a terrible situation for us, you know? And so I think companies uh, culturally um, can treat people like people. And it, and it really does providing like a bare minimum situation as far as like a living wage that like, not even bare minimum, a living wage um, that people can live off of. Um, that like if they need to take some time off to care for a loved one um, or take care of some business, they're not guilted um, because they're taking time off or um, they don't miss anything where somebody can have, you know, a family leave um, and have a job when they come back and they're not forced out when they come back. Um, uh, I don't know where, where people can come into a workplace and, and be their full selves and not have to hide. Um, I work with a predominantly in my coaching side, I work with people of color. And a lot of what I hear is like this um, kind of like dualistic life that they have to um, to have when they go into the workplace. And so like they, they you know, code switch um, and, uh, and um, become this other person that's not really truly authentically them. And not even just, you know, persons of color, but I'm thinking of um, the LGBTQ plus community. I'm thinking of uh, the differently abled community. I'm thinking of immigrant community. I'm thinking of, you know, um, all kinds of sort, all sorts of people um, that come into a place that feel like they have to fit a certain look or idea. Um, and I just don't think that that should exist. I think that people can, should be able to show up and um, be their full selves. And um, yeah, and that's it. 
And did you find like when you were doing the corporate world that you had to be a different person at the office than your authentic self? Oh yeah, 100%. Um, <laughs> oh gosh, I think, um, have you ever heard of the Enneagram by chance? Yes, I have. Oh. But do you want to go into it a little bit? Just a little bit, because um, I'll give some context. It's like, um, I know there's probably some Enneagram like fanatics out there, so I'm not going to, you know, uh, but I will say like Enneagram is just like basically this personality test. Um, it was developed, it's gained a lot of popularity, but basically it, it actually has like a ton of roots in all kinds of sort of backgrounds. Um, but it is, it's like a nine, like nine numbered system. And essentially each number has like this identity, but the identity of that uh, number in particular is like rooted in like um, an insecurity or a part that like kind of like scares you a little bit or a fear. And so, um, so it's like one through nine, I'm an, I'm a three on the Enneagram. So the three is the performer. Um, and that's rooted in like insecurity of like not being liked or um, not being accepted. And so being in like corporate America or being in like predominantly like white spaces, my like default setting was to like adapt. And so a good portion of like, I'll even say um, my uh, like of academia uh, for me growing up um, and bled into work life was like me fitting into those those spaces and becoming somebody that like was not truly authentically me to the point where I, I did not know who Jonathan was. I didn't know what Jonathan wanted. I didn't know how I was like who I was showing up. And so um, I was just like being swayed in all these other places. Um, yeah, and like that like was wild to me because I did I just if you were to ask me like what I liked, I'd be like, I would just respond like, what do you like? What do you want to do? Um, and I thought for a long time that that was because I was just so easy going and easy, uh, like go with the flow, which is true about me. But like, I have opinions, I have thoughts, I have things that I want to give to the world. And I just wasn't doing that because I was afraid if I was my true self that I wouldn't be accepted, right? I wouldn't get as many opportunities. And this is true. It's true. Like if I'm my true blackity black, black self, um, that like in corporate America, like um, I won't be given as many opportunities. I won't um, be seen as intelligent, right? Because if I, I, I speak with like, you know, I'm a little bit of slang uh, in the corporate world. If I don't um, uh, like the same things, I won't have the same opportunities. It's just, a, it's just, a, um, it is true psychologically. Um, when we look at like how people connect and um, are attracted to one another. And I don't mean that in an intimate way. Typically people are attracted to people that are in the same socioeconomic um, uh, level that they are, the level socioeconomic status they are. And then also they're more attracted to people that um, look like them. And so, um, and so if you have more connection points, it's true. And a, a lot of the people that I was surrounded by uh, were white um, and I didn't have any real connection points with them. I, I grew up, you know, poor. <laughs> um, I had to take out a ton of loans um, to, to go to school. Um, I, what, my family didn't go on vacations, um, stuff like that. So I, I felt like I had to put on this act um, a good portion of, of my adult life. Um, and it wasn't until probably like four or five years ago where I started to question and unravel those things and, and, and interrogate where did that... Um, where that came from. Um, and a lot of it was internalized racism. 
Um, a lot of it was uh, things that I heard. A lot of it was other people's perceptions of me that I placed on myself um, and people telling me that I'm going to be a lawyer all my life or different things like that. And so, or even the one that's like, oh, you're one of the good ones and one of the good black guys or whatever, one of the good black people. So like there's stuff, stuff like that that I had to unearth and uncover for myself and kind of unlearn and relearn who is Jonathan? What does Jonathan want? Um, and when I did that, uh, uh, well, number one, I got a really great job. And I, I mean, I ended up making a whole lot more money um, when I understood who I, who I was and who I wanted to be, but also realized that like, what I wanted to do, at least for this chapter of my life. And that's where common culture um, really was started. And, and that's why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing right now. So. So what is it that you recommend for companies to have cultures that have a good focus on DEI? Mm. Well, hmm. well, there's, there's two things. There's two things that I would say that immediately come to mind. So for organizations that want to care for their employees well, uh, you have to listen to their employees and give up um, power, decision-making, uh, and decision-making power and authority. And the reason why I say that is because like, if, if a company culture says that like all decisions is made by one person or a group, a small group of people, or like, um, if somebody comes in, this is, I'll just use this as an example. Hey, like, um, my, uh, I found that like, instead of a laptop, I know that, um, I'm on the move. I can go, I need a, um, I need a, a iPad An iPad would make my, my job way easier. And so if, if a company, um, it takes, you know, 40 decisions or like 10 decisions or all these different things, the line items to go up for yeses actually doesn't show true trust in the comp the employee's competency um, and ability to do their job and when they're telling you of what they need. Similarly, with DEI work, you have um, you have persons of color or uh, historically excluded communities being asked all of these questions to spill all of their trauma essentially um, to companies and companies are putting out these nicely written statements or hiring a DEI professional um, uh, or a DEI head or CDO, which is a chief diversity officer, stuff like that. Um, and they're expecting that to fix the culture. When DEI work is, DEIJ work is not um, like a checked box system. And so you have to divest, um, leaders within organizations have to divest from power and say, what, do, what are these communities saying? Um, and take their suggestions and um, critique seriously and implement those things. Um, like, and quite honestly, I love what I do as far as like DEIJ work, but realistically, I would like to just have a conversation of like, if y'all need help with an organizational restructure, like, let's just, let's just do that. Um, but it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, the DEI part is like so crucial specifically in the American context, because we just struggle with race. We struggle with, um, with, uh, with, um, LGBTQ plus, we struggle with ability, just seeing historically excluded people. And so you have to just listen to those, the historically excluded voices, listen to what they're saying, give them the power and agency to, to put those things into action and do them and stand by them. Um, and I would also say that there needs to be accountability, um, a shared accountability, not only for individuals, 
but also for organizations. Like if somebody says you're doing this wrong, um, organizations shouldn't be making excuses as to, um, uh, well, this is what we tried or we hired this person or, or covering it up. Um, take accountability for the things that you mess up on. Um, accept it. Take that, that uh, criticism. Um, take all of the constructive criticism and put those things to work. And we understand that like this is, it takes time. It's, like DEI work is people work. And so it really does take time, but it's not a checkbox kind of deal. Um, and uh, yeah, it really does start with like divesting from power, which is really difficult because power is really addicting. Um, yeah. So those are <laughs> in a snippet. That's what I would say. But, you know, learn more. You got to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. So why do you think it is so difficult to talk about underrepresentation? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I'll say this. It's not difficult. It's not difficult to talk about it in the sense that like me as a black person, I I always say I like my blackness. I mean, me being black is like political, like anything I do as a black person is like this political act. And what I mean by that is that like, if I, if, okay, so if something happens to me, oh, let's see, let's see. I'm trying to figure out like a real life situation that happened to me or something. I can't think of one, but I'm just thinking of like, think of any viral moment, right? Think of any viral moment that you've seen. The, the example that comes into to play right now, actually, is I forget the man's name, but he was um, bird watching in the park. It happened last year. Bird watching in the park. This woman does not have her dog on the on the leash. He asks her to put the dog on the leash, and uh, and all of a sudden she weaponizes calling the police um, on this black man uh, and and saying that um, he uh, this big scary black man or whatever is is coming to is like harassing me or like said he's going to harm me or hurt me. With that wasn't, I mean, we don't know for sure that was the case, but what was based off of that video, that's not what was happening. In the video, you could actually see her harming her dog at the point because he was on the leash. Um, but just telling that story, uh, that's not innately political, right? But like you see the, um, you see like people will take that that instance and they will um, they will immediately have like these automatic judgment thoughts of like what's going on in that situation but there's so many dynamics that happen in that situation that like me as a black person i have learned from like since i i mean since i came out of my mom's wound of like how the world is and how it and how i'm treated because of my blackness how my brothers are treated how my mother is treated um because of my blackness in american society and so for me and other persons a large portion of persons of color like they know and we talk about it all the time to be honest um, it is when I talk, particularly talk to white people that it gets more difficult because like they actually don't talk about conversations around race because they're literally not taught to talk about race. They're not um, examining their own ra um, race. Uh, and a lot, a lot of times race and ethnicity is conflated. They're not the same thing. Race is a made up construct, but we can't use the made up construct as an excuse not to talk about race because uh, race as it was made up was constructed to enslave um, darker skinned people, African people, indigenous folks, um, 
other uh, other communities like that. And so we can't use that as an excuse now not to talk about it. And so when when we and and similarly with other with other things, but um, with other communities. But I, I think we have there is such a difficult time talking about it because we literally don't know how. Um, and we 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 can look at that like education system, like you know we. <laughs> As far as like black folks, we we literally get like the month of February and we talk about like four, you know, there's like a staple of people, you know, that we talk about Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, um, some some people, Malcolm X. Um, but there is within the black community throughout history, black history is American history. And so like there are so many people um, that were incredible authors, incredible doctors, incredible engineers, inventors that have their place in history but we don't talk about them. And so um, there's like this siloed experience that happens depending on where you grow up particularly, but also like what kind of education you're having and stuff like that. I know, I, I know even for me, like after I graduated with my master's degree, um, I had to go and search for um, all of the stuff I didn't learn about. Read James Baldwin, read um, Toni Morrison, read all of these incredible authors um, uh, that I didn't get a chance to read growing up and they would have been incredibly impactful. And so I think that that's the issue. And so if we want to talk about CRT, um, that's not a framework that is done within like elementary, middle school, or even high school, even like undergrad education. That's like a law school, like framework, but something that would be similar to like understanding true history and understanding, um, the many, um, people that created where we are today would really help um, with the difficulty in talking um, about all kinds of difficult things. This is like, we just don't know. So we go based off of our own personal experiences and um, that um, that tends to be difficult and hard. But yeah, I was all over the place with that answer because it's just really hard answer to give. <laughs> That's okay. And to yeah. your point of talking about like lived experiences, like, everyone's lived experiences is different. And like, when it comes to race, like you can't say, you know, you have this lived experience of a race if you aren't of that race and haven't mm -hmm. experienced that culture directly in your family. Yeah. Yeah. So now critical race theory, CRT is a bit of a buzzword. I feel like mm -hmm. right now, um, yeah. it's grown in, in popularity. Um, and you did just mention it there. So can you talk a little bit more about what that is and what why people are talking about it? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> I'm not like a CRT scholar. Um, literally heard about it within the last eight to nine months because that's when it got hot. Um, but basically what CRT is, is it's like a law school, um, a law school like framework of looking at policies, legislation, um, cases looking at that and looking at it from a um, racial lens. Does this adverse, does this law or legislation or anything like that adversely, you know, impact communities um, due to like racism? Like that is like broad, you know, from my memory of what it is. And so basically what, um, why it's so hot right now um, is be, it's become like this buzzword because like, <laughs> because honestly, uh, I was a history poli sci major in undergrad, so like I, our pol political system already gets on my nerves. 
um, because what you learn in history, what you learn in my class, what I, what you learn in political science class, or whatever, just does not line up to what we we see in America. So um, basically, what happens is that the um, Republicans like uh, have started to galvanize around like this idea that CRT is teaching white kids um, how to you know feel bad for being white, hate their white skin. Um, and that this liberal, hardcore liberal left wants to like brainwash all these white kids into hating being white, which that that's not what it is. But it's a um, Republicans are really good at selling fear um, and, and, and fear mongering. Like that's that it's very it's I mean, it's worked. Um, I mean, yeah, we look at history. It, it just works. But um, but the the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, CRT isn't used in elementary school, middle school. Um, undergrad, even un- yeah, undergrad, high school, any of those things. It's a law school framework taught by law professors uh, to examine law. Um, but a lot of people don't know that. Um, a lot of people are, are just, you know, drawn to this idea of like CRT, like critical race theory. What is that? Um, and a, a good majority of the general public are not going to do the research. It's just like we're in a social media buzz kind of society now. And so whatever, you know, whatever catchphrase that's hot on social media or is easy, shareable or clickable, especially on Facebook, that's a mindful out there. Um, it's just easy to share and galvanize people around like this fear, which, um, which in reality, if you were to reframe it and say like, do you think that it's important to learn about the true history of America? Yes. Um, like that's, I mean, if you put it that way, then like CRT actually isn't that scary. And, and, and you would, a lot of people would actually agree that we need to, to learn the true history around America and not try and cover it up or whitewash it like we have been. Yes. Now you mentioned that in kind of your self-discovery, you know, there was internal racism. Mm. Is that something that you're still experiencing? I think, I think any person of color that lives in American society will deal with or is dealing with internalized racism all of the time. Um, the reason is, is because like, the reason is, is because it is, racism is so pervasive in American society. Um, it is like uh, the, 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 the metaphor that always floats around um, is like, we are a fish in water. Um, and like, I know people that are not from, not from the States that like immigrated here, I went to school here. Um, and they never even experienced American racism um, until they got here. Some of them, you know, uh, were in like pretty diverse areas too of of the world and like came here and like, this is, I've experienced racism, but this is another level. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, 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 once you like see it and recognize it, it's really hard, but it, and, but that's also not to say that every negative experience that I've ever had um, from a white person or a non-black person has been due to racism. I know I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm more aware than that. Um, but I can say that there's a lot of uh, situations that I've been in that like have me questioning, like if I was a white guy, would this happen to me? Um, if I, um, if I was white, would I, you know, be, you know, would I be given the credit um, for the answers I've given in class? Would I be given the credit um, for the work that I did at that um, on my job? Would I be given a level of leniency? Would I not be treated um, differently or get those like weird 
comments after I do like a, a, a speaking gig or, you know, um, do a speaking gig at my, you know, friend's wedding that was like filled with like 95% white people. Um, and people come up to me and saying like, wow, you are really articulate. Um, you speak really well. Um, would I get that same thing? Um, it's just like this subtlety and surprise. Um, and before I would take those as like actual compliments um, that are not rooted in like this implicit bias of what people think of like blackness of my blackness. Um, but I recognize like it's ignorance. Um, and there's some people that I will do the work with because like I'm in a relationship with them, but there's other people that it's like not worth my time. And I will kick my, I will dust my, 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 my shoes off and, and clean my hands of that and, and kind of walk away from that situation. Um, but yeah, I think there, I'm still navigating that today. Um, and have and, and like I said, a lot of, um, persons of color have to navigate that on a daily basis, just being American society of what it is. And do you think American society will get better when it comes to racism in your lifetime? In my lifetime? So the, so I like to consider myself an optimistic realist. Um, the optimism in me uh, says that I, I really, really want to believe that. Um, but the realist in me says no. Um, and there, and I have a, uh, an article that I'll reference um, because of that. So there's a, there was, I think it was a New York Times article basically looking at the Black Lives Matter movement pre-2020, 2020, and even post-2020, right? So we had all those uprisings, protests. There was like this unity um, after the murder of George Floyd, um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. And so, um, and so the pre-2020, uh, um, or I'll even say 20, summer of 2020, um, outlook on the Black Lives Matter movement was pretty low. It was like the, I think it's 30-ish percent. Um, during that time, during the summer of 2020, uh, it was at its highest point that it ever has been. Um, Americans were on the side of Black Lives Matter movement. I think it was like 70% or something like that. It was wild, like wild. Like everywhere I saw, I saw more Black Lives Matter, you know, stuff everywhere. I mean, even in the community that I live in, there, every time I go for a walk, there's like, I could count like 30 Black Lives Matter signs still up. And I'm like, cool, my neighborhood's awesome. But um, fast forward to today and recently, it was like a month, two months, people got surveyed again. It is lower. Black Lives Matter support is lower among white folks, um, uh, lower than the pre-2020 or pre-summer 2020 rate. Um, why is that? You know, um, and I think, I think when people are, I'll say, I'll be very specific because and I'm saying the black and white, um, dichotomy. The reason why is because, um, if racism is going to be solved in America, it is a problem that, um, white people need to solve. Um, it, it, it has to do with white people being in the spaces where they're hearing those racist comments, um, and not just towards black folks, but all communities. Um, and calling those behaviors out because like you mentioned earlier, um, I'm in an interracial marriage. I am one of, uh, in both sides of my, my partner's families, I am one of like three black people at, at all. And so anytime we go to a function that's on her side of the family, I am always the only or one of two, right? And so it's very difficult for me to have conversations around you know, ending racism, you shouldn't say that, stop doing that. And also exhausting, and it shouldn't be my job. 
Um, and so for white people to have community and be and and hear those things and being able to call it out and just being like, no, that's not right. That when we get to that point and it's consistent and it's like, um, and we're able to have conversations around race that are like not like you know, that, um, then I think we'll be able to get to that point. But we're not nowhere close to that yet. Nowhere, nowhere near it. Right. I like the uh, optimistic, realistic view of yeah. the situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like people hear that and they're just like, "Dang, this dude is so negative." Like wow, he just keeps saying white people a lot and wow, like black this and all this stuff. And the fact of the matter is, is like, when you hear me say that, are you more offended or like, is it sin like this feeling in you because I'm saying that or, or I'm saying something wrong or, or that I, that you disagree with? Or is like, is there some like bias that is happening? And I think that's the, that's the thing that goes back to your question about like, how do we have these difficult conversations? I feel like we have to be willing um, to interrogate and investigate those feelings a whole lot more so that we can have actual conversation. And I say that, and everything I'm saying is from my experience, not, not only from my experience, but my research um, and, ex and examination of the workplace, of, of other uh, lived experiences from other Black folks and marginal, um, ex historically excluded communities, um, that I can say this and almost say it definitively, um, uh, that like, you know, racism exists in America. America is racist. And, um, but the thing is, that is not, that is something that can be fixed. That is not like something that's like innately you. It's a, a racism is not innately American. American, it, it's a characteristic of America, but it's something that can be changed, um, and unlearned. Um, and so I think that idea, that concept needs to be embraced. Like racism um, you get called a racist, like it's not the end of the story. You can like unlearn it, explore it, figure that out and like unlearn it because you're going to make more mistakes. I make all kinds of mistakes all the time um, with my own like <laughs> misogyny, sexism, um, ableism, homophobia, all those things. And I still have to interrogate that. But I have people that are in my life that are in those communities. And when I'm called out, I just accept it, apologize and move forward and learn from those experiences. And I think the same thing can happen um, with the conversations around race and all those things. Exactly. And yeah. it's, it's more than just black and white. Uh, it's more than just, you know, you can only be this one thing and you can learn and you can grow and you can unlearn things that you have dealt with for your entire life. Yeah, absolutely. Now we have talked a little bit, or we've talked a good bit about, um, you working and consulting with different companies and you mentioned that when you work with individuals that they have tended to be people of color. So can you just talk a little bit about how you coach and work with individuals? Absolutely. Um, so I love, I love to coach. Um, and I kind of like stumbled into it, like coaching, I'll just like give like a brief disclaimer. I, I feel like there's so many coaches that are popping up um, <laughs> nowadays. It's, it's really um, wow. But I will say this, like coaching is not, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a mentor. Um, I'm not somebody that's even telling you what to do. Um, if you're working with me, um, as an individual, you are, um, a, I, I believe that you are a competent person. I believe that you know what you're doing in your life. All I'm doing is I am partnering with you to kind of get a sense of direction. We're going on this journey together. Um, and I'm going to treat you like the competent, 
smart, intelligent, awesome human being that you are. Um, and so what that means is I'm asking you a ton of questions. I'm not giving you immediately answers. I'm, I'm trying to let you uh, unearth the answers that are already within you um, so that you can find the places you want to get to. And um, it's, a to it's a ton of like goal setting, you setting the goals, you telling us where we're going to go. And then we just, we just run and rip after that. Um, what I have found in my coaching is that it is uh, because I, I do leadership and career coaching. Um, and my belief is that like work or job or careers are really intertwined with who we are. Um, like I've, I've worked with folks that gotten laid off and like they feel literally they feel like um, like something is wrong with them because the company didn't want them anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like people experience that. And like, that's really real. Like people feel like this sense of worthlessness. Right. Um, I feel I've I've worked with folks that just like feel so lost. Like they've just been coasting. They don't know what else to do um, in their jobs and careers. And, and, and kind of like it touches on stuff in their personal life. Like, um, and so um, I'll, anytime I work with an individual, I always, you know, uh, let them know. Like I try and start with like a, a breathing exercise in the beginning because we're about to do some heavy lifting. We're about to do some deep emotional work. Um, and it's not always that. But, um, but I, I encourage them to come ready, come, um, come ready to work, come ready to like think, come ready to, 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 to navigate and explore um, and remain curious about what you want um, out of your job or what, you're, what you want out of your life so you can get what you want out of your job, right? So it's, it is so fun. I, I just love it. I love it. And I, I learn because like I'm, I'm coaching folks, but I'm, I'm learning um, so much about myself and, and uh, asking good questions and, and hearing the aha moments and um, learning more about like what I even want to do, you know, when I get, when I grow up, you know what I'm saying? Um, so it, it's really fun um, uh, working one-on-one -on -one with individuals. Yeah, no, that, and that's good to hear that, you know, while helping other people, you're learning about yourself. And I think a lot of people can just do that in, in their own day to day. Mm -hmm. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners about yourself? Gosh, hmm. I would say one thing about this is like, I'm incredibly passionate um, about diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Um, and not because it's hot and fad and, and it's okay to say like anti-racism or white supremacy or, you know, um, all these different things. Like it's okay to say stuff like now, uh, stuff like that now, like still sends like a ant up people's spines now, but, um, uh, but I feel like you couldn't say things like that openly, um, like two, three years ago, or, or you would have been like this pariah or something like that. But, um, like conversations around this, it's like, it gets so it's easy, but it's not easy. And I think the more, um, we're willing to like have those difficult conversations and learn and grow, I think it. Um, it becomes like second nature. Like we're going to, like, we're going to figure this out. We can figure this out. I'm just trying to stay hopeful and optimistic, even though majority of this, it sounds like I'm just like dumping on America or dumping on like how culture is done right now. Our organizational culture and companies cultures are done right now. It's, the, it's not true. Um, I do the work that I do. I, I criticize the way that I criticize. I'm, I'm honest the way that I'm honest because like, I believe, um, in like 
as cheesy as it sounds, I believe in a better future. Um, and even though it doesn't come in my lifetime, as long as we can do this thing together, it will eventually happen. And so I'm trying to keep that in the back of my mind. Um, so that way, um, you know, I don't uh, stay up at night trying to figure out, you know, I can't live in America anymore. So where am I going to go? <laughs> so I'm trying to, I, I just love like this, um, love people so much. And I just want everybody to thrive and live authentically. Yeah. And I, it is so important uh, to hope for a better future. And, and as you just said, to live authentically. Now, at the end of every episode, I do ask a random question of all of my guests. So my question for you is how would you handle a zombie apocalypse? Oh, God, you're up in my, my alley here. So um, the unfortunate part is that I live in LA County. So it's like heavily, heavily, heavily populated. Um, so one of the first things I um, would do is make sure um, that I communicate with my family. So we are at different points, um, but relatively close. We have a rendezvous point. Um, uh, and then make our way somehow to... It sounds weird, but make our way to like, uh, uh, like the high desert. So in Bar, like Barstow, it's surrounded by. There's three like um, military points there, and so like make our way up to Barstow because that place is like actually surrounded and it's a little bit more secluded, less populated. Um, but I would get all the rations I have. I already have like a earthquake kit that would be packed and ready to go. Have some, you know, um, uh, canned food, all that stuff. Uh, ready to go, but make sure all my loved ones are with me. Make sure we um, are gassed up, ready to go. I'm um, get to a more secluded place, isolated place. Um, I, I'm good at gardening. So, you know, we're going to set up a perimeter, make sure that we're, we're secure and safe. Um, start making some food, start growing some food immediately. Um, uh, and hopefully, hopefully bunker down and, 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 and uh, survive the apocalypse. <laughs> I oh man, Th those are some of my like favorite movies, favorite games to play. <laughs> the zombie apocalypse stuff, it's it's wild. All right, that brings this episode to a close. I will be leaving a link in the description, of course, for Jonathan. It'll bring you to everything you know related to his business, Common Culture, and good things that he is doing there in terms of events, consulting, calls, all that sort of thing. And um, along with, you know, some social media and contact information if you would like to get in touch with him. So feel free to look into all of those resources. And if we're able to track down that New York Times article that he mentioned, that'll be a great resource as well. That'll be left in the description. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. That brings you to Oliver social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So I'd love if you would go check those pages out, give them a follow and show that you are a great listener and share this episode along with going back and listening to other episodes if you're newer. And of course, if you would like to support the podcast monetarily or be a guest on the podcast, information in my email address is in the description as well. So I'd love to hear from you. So thank you so much, Jonathan, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Thanks for having me. See you.